0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: you got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless.
2: so crazy about it. it's just music
1: when he founded roxy music in 1971 brian ferry was the ultimate combination of style and substance 40 plus years into his career he
0: joins us on sound opinions i'm greg cod of the chicago tribune and i'm jim deere from wbez and columbia college Brian Ferry talks to us about jazz, Roxy Music, and going solo. And later, we review the new album from the always fascinating and ever-controversial Kanye West. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Do you know it's
1: coming out? We put that on my own July for? any rules everyone's trying to figure it out that's why the internet is like the wild west the wild wild west we need to write the new rules oh <laughs> what speakers was it i think it blue speaker That is a piece of a three-minute commercial that recently aired during halftime of the NBA Finals game between Miami and San Antonio, featuring Jay-Z promoting his new album, Magna Carta, Holy Grail, in a room with uh, producers Rick Rubin, Pharrell Williams, Timbaland, and Swizz Beats. Think about it. A three-minute primetime ad during one of the biggest sporting events in the country. That's how Jay-Z is promoting his new album, not via the traditional record industry. This is part of a rumored $20 million partnership between Jay-Z and Samsung. One million copies of Jay-Z's new album are going to be given to Samsung Galaxy smartphone users for free, 72 hours ahead of the album's release in July. It's going to be delivered via a uh, Magna Carta app available later this month. Now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Samsung is paying 5 bucks a piece for each of these albums, meaning that Jay-Z's got a million seller already and $5 million in his pocket. Not a bad way to kick off your new album's promotional campaign. And if Billboard recognizes these sales as legit, uh, he's got a runaway bestseller as well.
0: Well, Greg, there may be some question about whether Jay-Z gets a runaway bestseller recognized by Billboard, but Billboard certainly has recognized Black Sabbath, and it was merely 42 years in coming. Hmm. Black Sabbath has debuted at number one with its new album, 13, for the first time in a 42-year career. The only time in the U.S. that they ever got close to the top 10 was with uh, Master of Reality in 1971. That made it to number eight. In the U.K., they had one other number one album with Paranoid, but now they've broken the UK chart record for the longest period between number ones, previously held by Bob Dylan, who had one in 1970 and the next in 2009. This is Sound Opinions and you're hearing a jazz instrumental cover of the Roxy Music classic Love is the Drug by the band's founder and our guest this week, Brian Ferry. Ferry formed the band in 1971 along with bassist Graham Simpson, Phil Manzanera, Andy Mackay, Paul Thompson, and the inimitable Brian Eno. The sound of Roxy Music was very much a pastiche of all the influences that molded the musical brain of Brian Ferry. He would go on to have a very successful solo career, covering a wide variety of artists and musical
1: styles. Brian Ferry decided to go back to his roots on his latest album, The Jazz Age. He covers a number of songs from his and Roxy Music's catalog in a 20s, big band jazz style. So we began the conversation by asking him why he decided to go that route.
3: Well, I'd always fancy doing a kind of instrumental album of my songs. And uh, last year we were doing um, a box set to commemorate all the kind of Roxy Studio albums since 72. And I thought, well, it would be a good year to... a good time to to do this project. And so uh, I then decided to do it in the start of the the 20s. Um, Jazz uh, from that period has always been... Kind of music that I liked and from an early age. When I was ten years old, and fifty-five, I, I became kind of really keen fan of of jazz music, and started my long sort of uh, journey listening to it. I guess um, starting with you know people like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, and then uh, Billy Holiday was always like a huge favourite of mine. Of course she was a singer but most of the albums i listened to were kind of instrumental things coleman hawkins is a really big uh, favorite of mine and uh, eventually my hero really became charlie parker who the bebop period you know with miles davis uh, dizzy gillespie mm-hmm. I started making albums, though, in uh, 72. In fact, from the mid-60s on, I didn't really listen to jazz for quite a few years until uh, just fairly recently, in the last five years or so, I've kind of um, been listening, going through my my old records and listening to a lot of stuff that I, I liked years ago. And um, so I guess that's how I came to do this Jazz Age album.
1: Ten-year-old kid listening to jazz. What was speaking mm. to you about that music? What hit your ten-year-old mind at that point and, and, and I don't blew know. it know. It's interesting.
3: <laughs> it's really interesting. I don't know. It Just something hit me, and uh, there, there was a kind of trad revival going on in England in the, the mid '50s. where, you know, people were playing kind of New Orleans music, and uh, but once I listened to them, I wanted to listen to the real thing and um, went to the source of it all, you know, which is basically. You know Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven, and him playing with King Oliver, and and then later the later in the twenties the Cotton Club Orchestra with Duke Ellington—they played some beautiful stuff, and it just touched me. to read all the magazines and jazz magazines and stuff. I went to see quite a few people as they passed through my hometown of Newcastle in the north of England. I saw Dizzy Gillespie and uh, Count Basie and, you yeah, know, Modern Jazz Quartet, lots of different people.
0: Well, Brian, I, you know, you speak so eloquently of your passion for the jazz of that era. I understand why the jazz is, is, is a jazz interpretation of your music. I guess I'm still baffled by why you decided to do an instrumental interpretation. Um, <laughs> you know, why didn't you sing? Oh, yeah. uh, you know, well, that it, was,
3: the main, that was the, main, the main reason for doing it uh, initially was that I wanted to see, you know, I guess I wanted to have on record, you know, some of my songs without vocals, you know, as tunes, as melodies. To put the spotlight, I suppose, on me as the s- songwriter rather than the singer, you know. And I quite like the purity of it, you know, instrumentally. See how they would stand up. We really—it was a very enjoyable process because it's great working with all, all all those kind of great acoustic instruments, you know, the various saxophones. We even had bass sax on this album, mm. featured quite heavily, which was a you know a great instrument of the period, which defines some of those records from the twenties, you know, and. Most of my career has been, as you know, spent with screaming electric guitars, you know, (laughs) which are also great. But it's nice to get away from that and do something uh, different and perhaps in some ways more refined.
1: I interviewed you a, a few years ago. You were covering some blues songs at the time, and it never occurred to me that the blues was particularly a big influence in your music and mm. you said something along the lines of those early blues songs, which must have coincided with this period where you were listening to a lot of jazz yeah. as a kid. You know, quite yeah. simple, quite emotional, highly stylized. And you mm-hmm. said, that's what captured my attention. What, it seems mm-hmm. like there's an element of style here that uh, has been a thread through your yeah, music.
3: I guess so. I mean, uh, musically and visually, because all of those people I like... They all seemed to just look so damn cool, you know. Uh, <laughs> people like Lead Belly, who was a bit of a kind of dandy, you know, he was always really dressed up in pretty cool clothes. And of course, uh, Duke Ellington, all the jazz players that I ever saw, uh, either in photographs or in real life, uh, they would dress up to go on stage, and it was a big deal. It was like, hey, you know, this is serious work, and uh, I kind of liked that, that. And it related to, in some ways, to the movies that I liked. My, People like you know, Fred Astaire, Cary Grant, who always kind of looked amazing. And so, same with the bebop players in their own way. They were kind of you know, great, great characters to look at, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: And there was something very adult about it too, I would imagine. Um, that's,
3: very tr- that's very true. It kind of – you felt somehow this is my music. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, there were, I didn't really have any contemporaries who were into that kind of stuff. I, I was very much in my own little world. There. I think some of my sister's friends used to let me, she was older than me, but let me come listen to their Duke Ellington records. <laughs> 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 that was a special favour, yeah. yeah, yeah. From the beginning, yeah.
0: hanging out with the older, sophisticated women, Brian Ferry. Oh, yes. We're talking yeah, to well, Brian to, Ferry. You
3: have to start somewhere. But, oh, there you go. Uh, yeah,
0: we're, yeah. we're talking to Brian Ferry on Sound Opinions. Brian, um, one of the things that the Jazz Age does for, for me and Greg is it offers us the opportunity to kind of take you through your career mm-hmm. because there are elements uh, from every era of your career here, starting with the first song that Roxy Music released as a single, Virginia Plain. You have to, you know, 40 years later when you're revisiting, reinterpreting so radically a song like that, does it take you back to to where you were when you wrote it and, and how it came together and why it stands the test of time?
3: In some ways, yeah, but because you do kind of have flashbacks of oh yeah, I remember when we did that, and various kind of uh, images fashioned to the mind when you're doing uh, mm. a remake of something like that. But on the other hand, you just look at it you know, quite dispassionately as well, you know, because you think oh you know this is a song that could be done in many different ways, and I've discovered that through my own efforts as a kind of translator of other people's songs and. interpreting uh, songs by other artists, it's been quite an adventure for me to say, oh where can I take this song and I feel it but I'd like to uh, kind of describe it in another way somehow I was very confident with this project because I knew the players could improvise so beautifully and improvisation is, as you know, a really big part of jazz and, you know, you can arrange certain parts of the tune that they play together
0: Mm. Well, improvisation has always been a key part of your work and also this idea of the oh, pastiche. Yeah. When I interviewed you in person, it was one of my greatest days as a journalist ever. We went over to the Art Institute of Chicago, which was doing a big um, uh-huh. surrealism exhibit. And that led us into this long conversation of surrealism leading into the pop art movement and Richard Hamilton and his influence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but for younger listeners who, who don't realize that this approach of of taking so many different ingredients, putting them together in new ways, can you talk about how that has formed your life and, and, and led up to this album today? Mm.
3: Yeah, well, to begin with, with Roxy, I mean, I don't think we were trying to particularly create a style, but we did like working with other styles, with, with many styles of music, and I'd been influenced by the things we've been talking about, jazz and and blues, and also Broadway music, um, all the musicals I'd seen as a kid and growing up. I liked the the songs from from those movies and some of the best pop songs ever written, you know. But there was always this kind of underlying thread of American music and um, music which really originated in the South, you know, in, uh, in New Orleans and thereabouts. It was interesting in the first days of Roxy kind of, I don't know, just assembling. All the, all the songs was, seemed to be like a collage to me. Oh, I was
2: moved by your screen
3: After the first album, a kind of direction developed more with For Your Pleasure, which is the second album, which is one of my favourite things we did. Yeah. What we wanted to do was, what I certainly wanted to do, was um, do kind of music which had a lot of emotion in it, because uh, passion is really the driving force of music, I think. And, but also I wanted, like, ideas, and studying a bit under Richard Hamilton, and who had kind of, also, he in turn had followed these are all kind of intellectual people, and I wanted to get some of of this kind of approach, kind of ideas, into the music as well as the feelings. Feeling is the most important thing, but it's good to have some cute ideas too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: as you said, the screaming guitars, but also food
1: for thought.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, you'd mentioned the influence of Hamilton, and I, I remember you saying once that uh, you know at University of Newcastle. The art students, uh, there, there were a couple of factions there, weren't there? It seemed like uh, mm-hmm. you know the jazz, yeah. the jazz crowd didn't hang with the pop art crowd, right?
3: That's right. Yeah, they were they were the kind of School of Paris the kind of beatniks and kind of <laughs> Bohemians, and uh, there, there wasn't a beard to be found on the, on the pop <laughs> art side of the building. We were all kind of um, listening to a different kind of rhythm. We were, we were listening to Motown and Stax records and stuff like that. You know. So, yo, yeah, it was a different thing.
2: You've got me, girl, on the run-around, run-around, got me all around town. Thank You've you. got me, girl, on the run-around, and it's get me down, get me down. Lady, if you want to find love,
0: Continue our conversation with Brian Ferry in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And the name Brian Eno might come up again. Then stay tuned because we'll give our reviews of Yeezus, the latest from Kanye West.
3: Takes me further from heaven Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And our guest this week is Brian Ferry, solo artist, style icon, and founder of Roxy Music. Ferry formed the band in 1971 with the one and only Brian Eno. They made two albums together, the self-titled Debut in 1972 and For Your Pleasure in 1973, before Eno left the group because of creative differences. But he actually returned to work with Ferry on his new album, The Jazz Age. And so we asked Brian Ferry about what Brian Eno brings to the table as a musical collaborator.
3: The main house of Palace he kind of shake things up a bit, you know. He can kind of just add another element of surprise. You know, you could say, maybe Here's a track that I've been working on, and feed you one of these instruments. And you could you know, maybe distress it, distort it, do something, and make it more interesting. And he invariably, you know, will do that. Now, he, he's very, very interesting and also very amusing. And one of the great things about working with people in music is humor, funnily enough. Even though you can be working on um, like a a tragic album or whatever, it's great to be working with people who can make you laugh from time to time. And uh, Brian and I always got on very well in, in that sense.
1: When you started working with him again, you know, that that frantic track that you include Mm -hmm. on the Jazz Age album, I thought, you had mentioned that it's kind of nice working with with Eno now because we're less competitive than we used to be. There used to be a little bit of push and pull back and forth, I would imagine, when you were younger uh, on those first couple of records. Did Did that tension or that competition make the music better, in your opinion, or was it...
3: Oh, I think so, definitely. I think an element of conflict in creativity is always a good thing. It's not that we were at war in the studio, but I think we're always vying, not just me and Brian, but also Phil and Andy, to try and get our kind of stamp on the track, you know, Hmm. and on whichever song it was. And that was good. It was kind of, there was a kind of healthy rivalry, I think. But I, I think the good ideas hopefully always won out in the end.
0: Are you guys all still mates, Brian? Will uh, Phil Manzanera or, or Andy Mackay give you a call and say, wow, a jazz, 20s jazz Louis Armstrong version of Bogus Man? I uh, wasn't expecting that, Brian. Good job.
3: No, I haven't had that call. But I, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> but I have from Brian, funnily enough, um, from Eno. Um, he, he, he told me he loved the uh, I Thought and, uh, and the whole album. He said, you know, he said, it shouldn't have worked, but it did. Huh. <laughs> a praise indeed.
1: Were you sad to see him go after that second uh, Roxy record? I know, I know you hold that second Roxy mm. record in high esteem. I
3: wasn't at the time, but, <laughs> uh, but looking back, looking back it would have been great to have had him on board for the next one in particular, Stranded, mm-hmm. even though it probably benefited in some ways by having a change of personnel. Over. In fact, to his great credit, Brian's always gone on record saying that. That was the best Roxy album, mm-hmm. Stranded. But it, it certainly has a quality about it, which was you know, different from For Your pleasure. So It was another chapter which maybe had to be written without Brian there. It would be great to re-cut it with him on it, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ah, that would be a project. Nostalgic gesture, yeah.
1: How, how did that change yeah. the working method for you, Brian, with, you know, hmm. out of the group and, and writing that well,
3: music? I was pretty in love with, at that time with the idea of Eddie Jobson being in the band. Because he'd worked on this, the intervening album I did, which was my first solo album. After For Your Pleasure, I, I did uh, these foolish things. Oh, where have you been, my blue eyed son? Where have you been,
2: my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of 12 Misty Mountains, I walked and I crawled on six crooked highways.
3: For Your Pleasure had been quite an intense record, and after I, it was over, I kind of wanted to do something which was very, very different, clear my head of it, kind of. And so I did, you know, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and the title, Try These Foolish Things, was an old standard from the 30s. A cigarette that bears straight lipsticks, traces An airline ticket to romantic places And still, my heart has wings. These foolish things remind me of you. An interesting selection of songs that have kind of influenced me in some way. And uh, Eddie Jobson played on that violin and keyboards. And he brought a kind of other, an extra musical dimension to what I was doing. And uh, I guess. After the experimentation for your pleasure, I wanted to do something that was legitimately musical, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eddie could layer these violins and sound like an orchestra and play beautifully in a classical piano, which is something we hadn't had in Roxy.
2: You never wear a stitch of lace.
3: The unsung hero, of course, I must say, of uh, For Your Pleasure was John Porter, who is never mentioned, but was the bass player on that album. Mm-hmm. And he he was, at, in fact, at college with me and played in my college band. We played in that together for a short while. And we were looking for a bass player for For Your Pleasure, and I suddenly thought, well, John can play bass. He's a guitarist, really, but he could play and he came, he came and played bass and he did all those tracks and brought a great uh, presence to the bogus man, which he also played guitar on, of course, which not many people knew. That. The bogus man is at your heels, I'm at your coat. You must be quick, I'm ringing up, at your throat.
0: You mentioned These Foolish Things, the solo debut in 73, and so many of your records are rich with these reinterpretations of classic rock songs. You know, Jealous Guy... (laughs) The business of interpreting other people's work, how is that different from the business of creating or the business of reinterpreting your own work?
3: It's, it's great to write your own songs. And um, after – well, I suppose 73 from from the first album onwards, I, mean, the, I thought, well, this is, this could be a very interesting thing to do. I mean all the, all the great singers of the 20th century really up to that point hadn't been songwriters at all. Elvis didn't write songs – uh, ben Crosby didn't write songs. Frank Sinatra didn't write songs. Billie Holiday write, wrote a couple only, really. She was an interpreter of the highest order. And uh, I thought it would be nice to do an album where I could just sing and not worry about the or the whole angst of composition, you know, of writing, especially lyric writing, which I, I found very testing. And uh, But um, obviously the, there was this great precedence, of course, of jazz musicians, taking standards and reinventing them. With a few of the, the covers that we did, we did succeed. I think um, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall being the first one. It was fun to do that, and I thought, oh, this is great to be able to make music but not have to you know, worry about every word I wrote or every, uh, every aspect of the composition side. So it, it became a great holiday away from my own writing. Plus, I didn't really want to write myself out
1: you have to have the range and the curiosity also to, to oh, sort yeah. of discover curiosity that yeah, Curiosity is a stuff. big thing.
3: I have always had a very curious nature and I said, what would happen if you did this? What would, what would happen if we tried that? And, which can drive people crazy, of course, mm-hmm. if you're working with them in the studio because uh, you, you sometimes <laughs> want to try everything and uh, – and uh, you have to show restraint sometimes.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. That's why some of those records took seven years, Brian. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that's what
3: I'm trying to tell you.
1: <laughs> well, you know, yes. the, that curiosity was there from the start. Uh, you lead off the jazz age with Do the Strand. And it's fascinating to me that you do an instrumental version of a track where I think it's like one of the very highest standards of you as a, as a lyricist. You mentioned that, that Cole Porter... Was an influence, not exactly a household That's name right. in 1972. Yeah, but
3: he was um, a brilliant lyricist, and, sure, uh, and all-around songwriter and socialite, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he was a, a, quite a character and very smart, very bright, and brought a great kind of sophistication from another world, really, and into the, into his lyric writing.
1: So you, t- you that was kind of your send-up of, of of him, I take it.
3: Well, it was a kind of homage mm-hmm. to him, really. It was a, a tribute to him because saying, "Well, let's write a song about the ultimate dance and kind of the dance of life or something," and uh, and throwing in all kinds of things that I liked, and it became a kind of um, one of the best songs that we did live for the Roxy fans that followed us. We, mm-hmm. It was just a kind of rallying song, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's always been a fun song and an important part of the Roxy canon, if that's the right word. Sure. And, uh, and so to start off the album with that seemed quite a cool idea.
1: And yet you pull the lyrics out of it. You wanted to, it, but there's, yeah. there, there's something more to it than just these words. Yeah,
3: lyrics, who needs them? <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's an incredible range of material there. Roxy did uh, reunite 10 years ago. You said one of the dilemmas that you had, Brian, at the time about which version of Roxy music do people want out there. I thought that was kind of. A, that's true. Because really, there's like three yeah. phases of the group, right?
3: That's true. Very true. Yeah, they all have their interesting moments as well. I mean, obviously, in America, I would say that the Avalon period is more more well known generally. You know? Mm hmm in as much as that was the most successful album that we did. It was a kind of... An album that I, get, I hear a lot of compliments about over the years, and it's some of the kind of early fans, or fans of the earlier music, of course, thought it was a bit too smooth or too... Whether sophisticated is the right word, maybe, I'm not sure. But it, it was a very moody record, and um, it's, it's a great sound, you know, mixed by the great uh, Bob Clearmountain, and we made that in the, uh, uh, in the power station in New York. Mm-hmm. It does capture something... Now the party's
2: over. I'm so tired. Then I see you coming out of nowhere. Much communication in a motion without conversation or a notion.
1: you know you look back on it now it holds up very well you, you mentioned the sound of avalon i remember for about 10 years you would walk into stereo stores in in chicago for example and that would that record would be on as the way you tested the the greatness of your stereo system because this had mm. that full dynamic range and yeah. you know it was beautifully mixed and it sounded wonderful coming out of the speakers as this And it reminded me of a comment you made at one point, which was that, you know, Ellington treated the orchestra as his instrument. Uh-huh. You know, I kind of looked at the studio as my instrument, and it seemed like that was the culmination mm-hmm. of that sort of That's you know, right. yeah, a- attraction.
3: Yeah, because you'd, fi- you'd find yeah. that there were a lot of things that were kind of created with, uh, let say, two or three guitars, and you think it's like one... Solo was actually, you know, two or three different events that have been kind of glued together. And a lot of that sort of stuff went
0: on. Avalon stands, mm. Brian, as the last Roxy album, 1982. There wasn't a temptation right, right. after that uh, great new millennial reunion to, to move yeah, forward? Th-
3: yeah, there, w- there was. Uh, there was. And we we did a few days in, um, in London in a studio. But it, it, I didn't get the same kind of – it didn't feel quite right to me. Mm. So I um, abandoned that idea. And I guess I was enjoying too much, you know, working as a solo artist because I, I had a kind of a strong team of musicians anyway who had become like, like my new band, you know.
1: You know, you think back on, on your career, you know, the Roxy, the first four or five Roxy music records seemed to come out in a, in a complete rush. I mean, they were just one on top yeah. of the other and changing very fast. Uh, you know, I made a joke earlier about, you know, you spacing out the, the time between solo records. Mm. And, and is it because you're, you feel like your standards have increased uh, in, in terms of what you consider an acceptable song? Or is it more a case yeah. of, you know, where's the time, you know?
3: It's both. As life develops, you suddenly, you do find less time for songwriting. Songwriting takes time. When I was um, starting my career at the beginning, I mean, I... I didn't really have any other life except music, 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 you know? and also I felt I had something to prove, I guess. And so every waking moment was spent, you know, writing and recording. And then you start trying to develop a life as well. You know, so hmm. I still go to work every day, and uh, I'm very fortunate to have a great studio. And so it's it's a pleasure to go to work. But I, I like making records, which is a kind of daytime thing for me. Whereas I always see, like, songwriting as a night activity. Hmm. It's just you and the piano (laughs) and the cigarette smoke.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure talking to Brian Ferry. Pleasure talking
3: to you both as well, yeah.
0: What are your favorite Roxy Music or Brian Ferry memories? And who else should go jazz? Sound off at 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg drops a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, and we review the hotly anticipated and divisive album from Kanye West.
3: River of Keeps slowing down Day turns to night Still is fall since we're
2: apart
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is the one and only Kanye West with a new track called Black Skinhead from his sixth album, Yeezus. Greg, I don't know how much introduction Kanye needs. If you don't know who he is at this point, you've been under a rock for the last decade. He debuted with a great triptych of albums, 2004, 2005, 2007. College Dropout, Late Registration, graduation, rewriting the rules of what hip-hop is and can be. In 2008, he threw us a curveball, 808s and Heartbreak, a dark night of the soul album inspired by the death of his mother and the end of his engagement. The ego and the accomplishments grew even bigger with his last album, 2010, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Everyone in the music world has been wondering, what is he going to give us the sixth time out. He's been in the news a lot lately. He and his current love, Kim Kardashian, just had a baby. As he was preparing to become a dad, he was making this album, jetting back and forth to Paris to record it. Forget about everything you read, gossip-wise, about Kanye West. Let's listen to this music, and Greg and I will come back and give our opinions. This is a track called Hold My Liquor by Kanye West from Yeezus on Sound Opinions.
2: I can hold my little, but this man can't handle his weed. dark in your morning now, on Chicago south of town, I'm on deep together, I
1: heard
2: You can't handle me I can't control my <laughs> And my d- and they can't control me You say you know me my But you really just know to owe me Keep back on my coma. Waking up on your sofa When I park my Range Rover Slightly scratch your Corolla Okay, I smash your Corolla I'm hanging on a hangover Five years we been over Ask me why I came over One more hit and I can own ya One more up and I can own ya One cold night in October You so you me floating Feel like deep October. You so you had me dead might call Tupac over. Yeezy's all on your sofa. These the red Octobers. Still ain't learning no manners. You love me when I ain't sober. You love me when I'm hungover. Even when I blow Doja. Then a the auntie came over. Skinny strips with no shoulders. Telling you that I'm bogus. you don't even know us. Baby girl, he's a loner. Baby girl, he's a loner eight night organ donor after daddy diss on ya after daddy's just hopeless so mates become soulless when it's over it's over i back out my coma
1: that is hold my liquor a track from the new kanye west album jesus it features chief keef a new hip hop artist from chicago in fact Kanye's sound is referencing a lot of that new Chicago hip-hop sound, 2013's Chicago drill music scene. There's also a lot of the sparse minimalism of uh, 90s industrial music. You're hearing a lot of references to the harsh edges of ministry, Nine Inch Nails, etc., and avant-rap. You know, disposable heroes of Hip hypocrisy from the early 90s saw Williams' Death Grips more recently. Kanye has changed his sound yet again. I think he was noted for more of this lush production here he has gone in the opposite direction, harsh, brutally minimal, sometimes stripped down to the point where it's just little more than West's voice and a beat, And that's defying expectations. The whole idea here is I'm not, I'm not what you expect. There's a sample of a gospel record in the middle of the first track in which the choir is singing, he'll give us what we need, it may not be what we want. So Kanye basically knows I'm not making any radio hits for you on this one, folks. This is about me and my anger, really, at, uh, you know, some... Broader issues that he wants to talk about, you know, the obsessions with race, class, and sex, especially of the interracial variety, but also how these things speak to the bigger issues of control and freedom. That's the big subtext here in this record. I think he perceives of himself as a fairly successful guy, both as an artist and a businessman, but I don't think he feels like, I've got a seat at the big boy table in those corporate suites. I'm still being treated like a slave. And he's bringing that point home in a number of different ways on this record. Are my new business partners basically just new slave owners in corporate disguise? But the downfall of this record, and I think it's got amazing music on it and some amazing points to make, is some of the delivery. There's some really vile, tasteless examples of misogynist, sexually violent language in a lot of these songs that, that really kind of obscures the larger points that he's trying to make. You know, he's playing into this sexual predator stereotype. And I think the larger point he's trying to make, there's a line in in the record where he says, they see a black man with a white woman at the top floor. They're going to come kill King Kong. And that is the image that he sees of the African-American male in our society. He's trying to poke some holes into that. But at the same time, he's playing into that stereotype. Does he need to make that point while yet again degrading women? And I I think he's smarter than that. He knows there are other ways of approaching this topic without degrading women. I wish he hadn't done that. For me, it's not Kanye's best work. It is definitely worth hearing, but it is a burnet
0: album at best. Um, you know, I'm really troubled by this album. You and I have followed Kanye West since the first mixtape. We know this guy. We have defended this guy. He is not the caricature and the cartoon that you see in the media. He is a really smart artist who happens to be really bad at public relations, consistently shooting himself in the foot. I think that this album is like having the most beautiful, pure gold frame you could imagine and then putting a painting in it by Thomas Kincaid, shopping mall artist. And by that, (laughs) I mean that the music is extraordinary. It is taking what can be considered a hip-hop backing in, in fascinating new directions. There are samples of Nina Simone's version of Strange Fruit. He's working with Daft Punk on several tracks. And he brings in super producer Rick Rubin to help tie the whole thing together. Here is something I noticed. Rick Rubin gave a short interview to the Wall Street Journal, and he said he spent two hours with Kanye on a Sunday night in the studio after Kanye came from his baby shower with Kim Kardashian, and he did half the album's vocals in those two hours. And I think it feels that way. The easy misogyny, the sloppy racism He is so much better than this. It's hard to take him seriously on any of the things he's trying to say about race. He mentions that phrase, Chirac, 500 kids killed in Chicago last year. But then he says nothing about it. I would give this a flat-out trash-it on the basis of the lyrics, but it's a buy-it masterpiece on the basis of the music. So I guess that's in the middle. I guess it's a burn-it. You have to listen to it. But wow, what a disappointment from a great talent tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away,
2: island lost at sea, oh. Now I'm standing on my own. Standing far from home. Come on. you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Standing out of my own
0: As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and play you a track we can't live without. This week, it's Greg's turn. He's going to parachute down from the Goodyear blimp. What do you got for us, Mr. Cott? Jim, I've been
1: thinking a lot about uh, the predecessors to what Kanye West has been doing on his new album, Yeezus. In hip-hop in particular, this sort of harsh, minimalist landscape, busting out of the boundaries of what hip-hop can be. I want to talk about an artist in particular who I think did it better than Kanye, Saul Williams. He got signed in the 90s by Rick Rubin, who worked with uh, Kanye on his new record. And I think Rubin saw Williams as a traditional hip-hop artist. Williams didn't really want any part of it. By his second album, self-titled in 2004, he was completely busting out of the genre with something that people were calling at the time industrial rap, certainly a genre-bending record. Just look at the guest artists on the record, not your traditional guest artists that you would see on a hip-hop record. Zach Della Rocca from Rage Against the Machine, Serge Tonkin from System of a Down. It led to a tour with Nine Inch Nails, and Trent Reznor loved what he was hearing and offered to work with Williams on his next record, The Inevitable Rise and Liberation of Niggy Tardis. But I think it all began with that self-titled record in 2004, and the track I'm going to play from it, you actually might have heard on a, a Jim Shoe commercial, but don't let that throw you off. This is a raging track about slave reparations. The line I want my money back over that thundering drumbeat and a synthesizer that I can only describe as sounding like a tea kettle when it's just about to burst. Here's a list of demands from Saul Williams on Sound Opinions. <music>
0: List of demands by Saul Williams on Sound Opinions, Greg's desert island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim,
1: we're going to take the Sound Opinions world tour to Mexico.
0: Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minhoff. Special thanks this week to WHYY for letting me tape in Philadelphia. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia. He's a man who dresses so well, he gives fashion tips to Brian Ferry. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: New messages.
3: And I'll get back to you.
1: Hi, my name is Rick, and I'm calling from Oak Park, Illinois. Just enjoyed your show on the uh, families in music. Coincidentally, I've been listening for the last couple of weeks to the Andrews sisters. They blow me away. They're just an incredible sort of presage to rock and roll that in the 40s they could have boogie woogie bugle boy sounding so upbeat so danceable and just so getting close to what rock eventually might become glad to get a chance to mention them even just on a recording talk to you later
2: he was a famous trumpet man from our Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the Army now, a-blowing reveling. He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B.
1: Good morning, Jim and Greg. This is Casey Taylor from Austin,
3: Texas. The Father's Day show. I was surprised you did not talk about Loudon Rainwhite and his whole clan, including um, his wife, Kate, and her sister, Anna, and also the kids, Rufus and Martha. It'd be nice to explore that a little bit further, except for Rufus. Why am I always on a plane or a
2: fast train? Oh, what a world my parents gave me always.
3: Can't get past his singing. I appreciate his uh, musical talents, but sounds like he took voice lessons from Mumbles with Dick Tracy.
1: Would like to see more about Loudon. He's the guy. Keep up the good work, guys. You got your dead skunk in the middle of the
2: road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Hi, this is Katie from Deerfield. I am calling because I
1: loved your show about family bands, and I wanted to mention one of my favorite family bands who have flown under the radar for a lot of people. Trip Shakespeare of Minneapolis was fronted by Dan Wilson and his brother Matt. And after that band's demise in 1993, Dan went on to have two other careers as the Frontman of Semisonic, and then more recently as a Grammy winning songwriter for Adele and the Dixie Chicks. But Trip Shakespeare, which was in the beginning, was a power pop band driven by the vocal and guitar interplay of the equally talented Wilson brothers. Occasionally the brothers do
2: a live show together, and it is definitely worth attending. Is Laura from
0: Nashville, Tennessee. Just heard the roaches on your show. Love the roaches. I've never heard them before, even though I was uh, living and alive during the 70s. You mentioned the sound of
2: families harmonizing together. The term I've heard is blood harmony.
3: There is something essentially the same about family voices that blend like no other voices can blend, and it's called blood harmony. Love the show. Bye. My uncle
2: did it. My daddy did it. I'm beginning to think that it runs in the family. Oh,
3: no. Runs. Runs in the family.
2: No more messages.